A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Things whatsoever the Lord willed, he did, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. Psalm 135, verse 6. Indeed, in the biblical story, everything is done according to the good pleasure of God. It is his will that prevails over and against the efforts of human beings. The mention in Psalm 135 of elements from the first creation account in Genesis heaven and earth and the seas, reinforces that this is so and has been from the very beginning. Hello and welcome. You are listening to episode 24 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. If we believe in the sovereignty of the biblical God, that in spite of the efforts of men, the Lord always gets his way, if we believe that the Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing, He makes the plans of the peoples to no effect, as we hear in the Psalms, then why do we insist on either praising or vilifying the human characters in the biblical story? The reason has little to do with scripture and everything to do with us. We need literary heroes to identify with. We want good guys and bad guys so we can align ourselves with the good ones. They validate us. They make us feel good about ourselves. So in order to lift ourselves up, we have to tear someone else down. In the accounts of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, for example, we always want to put the blame on someone else, be it Herod or Pilate or the Jews who cried out to have him put to death. And don't ever think for a minute when you're hearing the story, if I would have been there, things would have been different. Simon Peter, Jesus' chief disciple, tried to claim that for himself, and the Lord called him out on it. We want to be special. We want to be different. We want to wiggle out of the painful position that these words put us in. But all of that is a rejection of the scriptural teaching that the only one who stands out, the only one that is good, is the God and Father of Jesus Christ, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And it is only his will that matters. In the narrative of Jesus' trial and crucifixion from the Gospel of John, the tension between the will of men and God's will is played out beautifully in the details and in the terminology. What the evangelist shows us is that ultimately it is God's will being fulfilled, even when human beings are motivated by their own agenda. Let's hear John chapter 19, verses 5 through 7. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. This last statement by the Jews that according to the law, Jesus ought to die because he made himself the son of God shows their lack of understanding 
that it is precisely his sacrificial death that fulfills his mission as Son of God. Their accusation that he made himself the Son of God may be false, but their reasoning that he ought to die is, ironically, confirming him as God's Son. Their connecting it to the teaching of the law is also unintentionally accurate and thus ironic. Jesus' death is according to the law in that it fulfills the law, granting deliverance from it to those who had been enslaved by it. Let's hear St. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. After the Jews ironically confirmed Jesus as the Son of God by condemning him to death, the narrative in John continues. Beginning at 19, verse 8, we hear the following. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium, and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Then it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. There are a few important things to point out in this passage. First, John keeps the Jews and non-Jews equally in the forefront of the narrative by using terminology suggestive of both. He tells us that the name of the place where the judgment seat was is called the pavement, and that in Hebrew it was Gabbatha. Pavement is paved stones, and thus likely refers to Rome, which was known for such roads. The unnecessary addition of the Hebrew word Gabbatha only reinforces that Jesus' trial, and ultimately his death sentence, resulted from a collaboration between the Romans and the Jews. The evangelist continues this motif with his precise choice of terms, dating the event by the day of preparation, according to the Jews, and at about the sixth hour, according to Roman timekeeping. As an aside, we could note that in the Gospel of Luke, this collaboration between the Jews and Rome is made explicit in a verse that is unique to that Gospel in the narrative of Jesus on trial. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. That's Luke chapter 23, verse 12. Another element of the text here in John 
is that Pilate's decision to have Jesus crucified is intended to show his allegiance to Caesar, but in doing so, he unwittingly manifests Jesus as the suffering servant of Isaiah, thus the king of the Jews. Isn't it ironic? We are even told that Pilate wrote the inscription above Jesus' head, that is to say, the charge against him in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. What's striking is not only that the three languages are represented, thus pointing again to collusion between Jews and non-Jews, but the fact that it was written and by Pilate is hammered into our ears no less than five times by the repetition of the Greek word, graphe, or writing. Hearing this literarily, we can understand that Pilate unintentionally validates Jesus as indeed being the king of the Jews according to scripture, even putting it in writing, in other words, scripturalizing it. In the whole scene of Jesus' trial and sentence in the Gospel of John, we get embedded in the narrative what Paul teaches at length in 1 Corinthians, namely that God thwarts the intentions of human beings. Even when they think they are acting to achieve their own purposes, God turns it around to serve his purpose according to his will. Once again, we find this aspect corroborated by the phrasing in Luke's gospel, in which Pilate gives the chief priests and men a choice between releasing for them Jesus or Barabbas, and they opt for the latter. Hear the irony in the way Luke phrases verse 25 of his chapter 23. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. The authors of the New Testament do not employ irony as a stylistic exercise. Both John and Luke use it to draw out the basic scriptural premise that, in the end, God always gets his way. In the story, he acts to save his people in spite of their stubbornness, rebellion, and disobedience. He saves them, we might say, not because they are deserving of it, but rather in spite of themselves. Let's conclude by hearing the quintessential scriptural teaching on that matter. 1 Corinthians from chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This concludes episode 24 of A Light to the Nations. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I look forward to meeting again with you soon. Heaven and on the earth, hallelujah.
season in all the abysses. Alleluia.